0: And uh, a very warm welcome to all our friends, colleagues, and eminent guests at this inaugural event. And especially to our distinguished speaker, Professor Joseph S. Nye Jr. of Harvard University. But may I begin with a word of gratitude to Lord Bell for being our host at the House of Lords today. And then move on to describe why we feel that this red-letter day is of such significance. So it's a year since the King Center for Strategic Communications, we call it KCSC, was established in the Department of War Studies. And our aim was always to create the primary hub in a network of global networks to further the research teaching, and understanding of strategic communications. And by a hub, we mean a place for a meeting of minds and talents. A place of belonging, both actual and virtual, where academics, policy makers, and practitioners can come together and share ideas, interrogate new research, and hone cutting edge techniques to everybody's mutual benefit. And this hub is now underpinned by a rich research and teaching remit that includes some 50 masters and PhD students of strategic communications. Our first of many initiatives last year was to partner with NATO Strategic Communications Center of Excellence, based in Riga, Latvia, under the imaginative leadership of Janisadz. And that relationship has blossomed to include shared conferences, events, publications, and importantly, Riga's... We start. I'll try again. I won't. And uh, importantly, uh, Riga's warm embrace of our master's students, several of whom have enjoyed intern and research posts at NATO's Center of Excellence over the last year. So today's a very. <laughs> I think what was the second one? Don't know. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Am I Thank, you. Thank you. So today is a very special day. It marks the first in our annual lectures hosted by KCSE and NATO partnership. It also sets the benchmark and it sets it very high. In fact, It could be no higher. Professor Joseph S. Nye Jr. is the most celebrated scholar in international relations today. Indeed, our celebratory remarks may not suffice because Professor Nye's experience and contribution to the world of policy are unparalleled. He is the university, distinguished Service Professor at Harvard and former Dean of its John F. Kennedy School of Government. He served in the uh, Government of President Carter, where he was Deputy Under Secretary of State, and he chaired the National Security Council Group on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, a service which afforded him The uh, State Department's highest accolade, the Distinguished Honour Award. Now more recently, his work in President Clinton's administration as chair of the National Intelligence Council and later as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, won him further Distinguished Service Medals. But more than a formidable mind and original thinker, he is, one might say, a household name. Professor Joseph Nye, Mr. Soft Power. <laughs> so we have one hour for Professor Nye's address and a few short questions, which uh, Professor Mervin Frost will moderate. And lunch will follow immediately after. Yanis Sartz of NATO will say a few words of thanks during lunch. So let's uh, turn to why we're all here. Professor Joseph Nye will pose the question. Is the American liberal order over? Please welcome our distinguished guests. Thank you very
1: much. Uh, I hope this uh, microphone is working now. Yep. Thank you very much for that generous uh, introduction. It always reminds me that uh, when my three sons were growing up and in the house and people would call and they'd say, is uh, Dr. Nye there, they often would say, yes, but he's not the useful kind. So,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I. It's a pleasure for me to uh, join you in celebrating the King's NATO Center on Strategic Communication, a tremendously important uh, topic, and I'm just delighted. I've, I'm a long-term admirer of uh, King's War Studies. Uh, I was once uh, 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 the lucky recipient of an honorary degree from King, so. I've uh, watched carefully with a great interest in what you all have done, and I think this is a great step forward in a distinguished tradition. What I'd like to do this morning is to try to give you my answers to that question, as whether the American liberal order will survive or not. Uh, and then uh, uh, basically to uh, hear your reactions and comments and, uh, and rebuttals, uh, whatever you may have in mind. Uh, and let me start, though, in answering that question with a certain number of caveats, which is that uh, we all know nothing goes on forever. And uh, also, we know that international order is r- very, very rare. Uh, Henry Kissinger, in his book a year or two ago on international order, uh, noted that there's never been a truly global world order. Uh, And that even includes the period after World War II, which some people refer to as a period of American hegemony. Uh, It more properly ought to be called half-hegemony, because half the world was outside it, namely the Soviet Union, China, and India. So uh, let's not glorify the past, um, but within a perspective in which we see that uh, there has been an order since 1945, but it was never perfect in the past. On the other hand, I don't know how many of you may have picked up uh, yesterday's Financial Times and seen the uh, comment by my colleague uh, Larry Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury. And he poses the question that we want to look at this morning rather nicely. He says, are we at a moment when the US and the world started moving on a path away from the peace, prosperity, and stability that have defined the past 75 years? For all that has gone wrong in the past 75 years, they've witnessed more human betterment than any time in human history. The rate of fatalities in war has steadily declined, even as growing integration has driven global growth and improvement in life expectancy and living standards. So the question is, is that beginning to come to an end? Uh, Larry's not alone in these observations or questions um, about inflection point. uh, Martin Wolf, Philip Stevens, both distinguished Journalists uh, have uh, raised the same question. And Edward Luce, also writing in the Financial Times in November after the election of Donald Trump, uh, didn't raise it as a question. He posed it as, uh, as an answer. He posed an answer to the question in which he said that 1945 is over and the U.S. is in decline. So clearly, at least, we have a debatable subject this morning. Now, if you try to answer this in principle uh, and look at international relations theory, uh, there is a theory which is called power transition theory of what happens as you see transitions in international power. Um, And many people say that the rise of China is a clear example of power transition and that this is why it is beginning at the end. The trouble with power transition theory, and I'll come back to this a little later in my talk, uh, and is it can sometimes refer to an overweening or overly strong attitude of the rising power, and that sometimes has been referred to as the Thucydides trap after the great historian's explanation of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, But there's another version which people don't pay enough attention to, which is the rising power is underachieving and doesn't rise up to the level of responsibility that's necessary for a major power. And I've called that the Kindleberger trap, after Charlie Kindleberger, the economist who was very instrumental in the Marshall Plan, who argued that the lack of American responsibility in the 1920s and 30s meant that the Americans didn't help Britain when it was no longer able to provide public goods, and that that resulted in the great disaster of what W. H. Auden called a low, dishonest decade in the 1930s. In any case, as we look at the questions of uh, what is happening in the world, one possible set of explanations have to do with power transition, either too much or too little. Uh, but that's not all there is. I wrote a book in 2011 called The Future of Power in which I said there are going to be two great power changes in this century. One we would think of as power transition, which is, you might say, horizontal. And that's largely from west to east, the rise or recovery of Asia. And that's what power transition theory is about. But another you might think of as vertical, which is from the states to non-state actors. That's new, and we don't know that much about it. And that I call power diffusion. And so if we try to understand what's happening, why this might be the end of an order. We don't want to get stuck on power transition, either of its versions, but need also to think about power diffusion. And finally, there's a third explanation, or causal sequence, besides power transition and power diffusion, and that's changes in domestic politics, and particularly the rise of populism and the revival of nationalism. And that we see very much um, in uh, the recent events here in Britain, but in other countries, the U.S. included. And it was interesting to see in an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, about a week or two ago uh, by um, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, and Gary Cohn, the National Economic Advisor, who are two of the more balanced and rational voices within the Trump administration, Uh, their argument that international politics is not an international community, but is, as they put it, an arena for competition. Quite a different view of how to look at the world. And that reflects very much the rise of this populist feeling that we saw with the election of Donald Trump. And I should say, to telegraph my conclusions, I'm much more worried about the rise of Trump than the rise of China, as we answer this question. But let me go back to the beginning and ask, how did we get where we are today? If one looks at the uh, situation uh, in 1900, uh, when Britain was preeminent, The United States became the world's largest economy about 1900, and it does not play a significant role in the global balance of power. It tends to restrict its attentions to the Western Hemisphere, somewhat to the Pacific, but it still is following the advice of George Washington of no entangling alliances and staying out of the balance of power politics, which, of course, are centered in Europe. That changes in 1917, when Woodrow Wilson sends two million American men to fight in the Great War in Europe, Uh, a very huge departure from American foreign policy. And of course, that tips the balance in the end of the war to the French and the British and against the central powers, and uh, efforts to try to institutionalize this in a League of Nations fail. The League is rejected by the American Senate. The Americans return inward in their attitudes. And the net result is that as Britain, weakened by World War I, is no longer able to provide the global public goods such as freedom of the seas, a relatively open trading system, stable international currency, and other such things, the Americans don't step in to help Britain or to take Britain's place. And the result is in the 1930s, you see no one capable of providing global public goods. And the result, as Kindleberger describes it, is that the Great Depression goes much deeper and lasts much longer than it otherwise need be. And it has terrible political side effects as well. In 1945, uh, after World War II, American leaders have more or less learned the lessons of the 1930s. And Harry Truman, uh, after first trying to maintain uh, Roosevelt's vision of a concert of the great powers in the U.N. Security Council, uh, decides that the United States has to step in and keep the balance of power. And you get, in 1947, when Britain announces or tells the Americans that it can no longer afford to provide peace and stability in the eastern Mediterranean, namely to defend Greece and Turkey against Soviet aggression, uh, Truman declares the Truman Doctrine that we will step in. Uh, That's followed the next year with the Marshall Plan, and the year after that in 1949 with an organization where celebrating in part here today, NATO. And um, then in 1950, the UN joins in a UN Peace Force in Korea. And what's interesting is that unlike the period after World War I, where the Americans withdrew their troops and brought them back home, ever after, those troops have remained forward-based. Uh, They've been there for 75 years. That's quite remarkable. Not the same troops, but the same uh, uh, forces overall. And I think that that has been profoundly important for our understanding of what the international order has been that Larry Summers so aptly described in his Financial Times article. One of the great problems of international order is how do you provide public goods? In a well-ordered domestic society, public goods are generally provided by the government. That's because a public good is something from which we all can benefit, and you cannot exclude anybody. So if we can all get it for free and can't be excluded, why pay for it? If I can get clean air anyway... Why am I going to pay for it? And the answer is governments then stepped into the role of providing public goods, and we pay taxes because the government levies the taxes upon us. At the global level or international level, there's no government and there are no taxes. So the question is, why would anybody pay to provide things which are available to everybody and from which nobody can be excluded Why not be a free rider? And the answer to that is that some states, if they're large enough, can see the difference as to whether they are helping to provide these public goods or not. They're such big consumers that they have an incentive to be a provider. Uh, So if you're Burundi, it doesn't matter whether you provide or pay for po- global public good like clean air or better climate or not, because you're going to get it or not get it regardless. So why pay? On the other hand, if you're the size of China or U.S. or Europe, uh, indeed, if you don't do something about climate, uh, you're going to suffer and you'll notice it. And in that sense, the whole theory of global public goods rests on the fact that internationally, global public goods have been associated with the largest state taking the lead in their provision. Otherwise, they're not provided. Now, the interesting question, if you go back to Ed Luce's comment that the United States is in decline, is maybe the U.S. is no longer capable of providing those public goods. Maybe it lacks this capability, as Britain lacked the capability after it was so severely weakened by the Great War. And is that the case? Well, I wrote a book about a year and a half ago called Is the American Century Over, which looked at this issue of is the United States in decline? And I pointed out that it's very hard to get a clear assessment of decline. Uh, When we talk about an individual human being or a human organism, you can get a pretty good prediction. I can assure you, without contradiction, that I am in decline. (laughs) However, if you ask what about a country, very hard to make that kind of prediction with any assurance. Horace Walpole, the great British statesman in the middle of the 18th century, uh, after Britain lost its American colonies, Walpole said, Woe to Britain! We are now reduced to a miserable little island like Sardinia. I hope there are no Sardinians present. (laughs) But uh, he said that on the eve of Britain entering its greatest century the 19th century, fueled by its advance in the Industrial Revolution. So there can be more than one century for a country, and we can often be wrong in our feeling of how we time these things. So the question is, as we look at the United States and try to answer Ed Luce's question, is the United States in decline, which will make it impossible For it to provide global public goods, uh, it helps if we distinguish two dimensions of the term decline. One is absolute decline, the other is relative decline. Absolute decline is what happened to ancient Rome. Rome didn't succumb to the rise of a new empire, the Persians or the Germans or the Gauls or whoever. It basically succumbed to hordes of barbarians against whom it could not protect itself because it had no productivity in its economy and was suffering from internecine warfare. So Rome essentially collapsed from internal warfare and lack of economic growth. Well, some people would say looking at American politics in the last few years, ah, that shows where the Americans are going. But one has to be careful with that sort of analogy, beloved of some editorial writers, which is it doesn't fit the facts. Uh, It may fit the mood, but not the facts. For example, if you look at demography and you ask how is the United States doing, the United States is the only major advanced country which will remain its ranked place number three in 2050. Uh, Europe, Japan, Russia, you name it, they all are suffering demographic decline. If you look at the United States, according to UN demographers, it's not. So today in demographic ranking, it's China, India, US. In 2050, according to the UN demographers, it will be India, China, but still the U.S. in number three. The second thing you might look at is the question of energy. If we were addressing this question a decade ago, uh, people would say, ah, but the Americans are becoming hopelessly dependent upon imported energy. How can they have an independent foreign policy when they're prisoners of energy imports? And then came the shale revolution, in which the new or the old technologies of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing were applied to a new domain, shale rock, and unleashed the shale revolution in gas and oil. And now the International Energy Agency in Paris projects that North America may be relatively free of imports in the 2020s. Uh, A third thing one could look at would be technology. If one looks at the leading technologies that will change and guide growth in the 21st century, they're generally described as biotechnology, nanotechnology or materials, and the third generation of information technology, particularly artificial intelligence and big data. And if you ask what country is at the forefront of all these transformative technologies, it's the United States. And finally, if you say, can they sustain that? Well, if you look at the university structure of the United States and take the rankings that are given by Shanghai Jiao Tong University, where they take the top 20 universities in the world, 15 of the 20 are in the United States none are in China. So this view that the U.S. is in absolute decline just seems to me not to fit the facts. It It fits the mood, but not the facts. But what about relative decline? Relative decline is different. That's what happened to the Dutch. The Dutch were doing quite well in the 17th century. Just look at your Rembrandts. Uh, But the British began to do better, particularly at sea. And that rise of British naval power essentially overcame Dutch preeminence. Um, so the Netherlands didn't decline, absolutely, but it declined relative to the rising power of Britain. So if one takes that question, relative decline, and asks how is the United States doing, you have to say, all right, well, who is going to replace it? Uh, One candidate, the largest candidate, would be Europe. Uh, The EU, when it acts as an entity, had an economy larger than the United States. The problem, of course, is can the EU act as an entity? Uh, Not as much as we would hope. The other candidate one could look at would be Russia. But Russia is a country that is in decline. It is very much in demographic decline. It's a one-crop economy, which is dependent for two-thirds of its exports on oil and gas, and it is blocked by an incredible structure of corruption, which makes it very difficult to bring about the reforms that you need to modernize the economy. A third possible contender for who could replace the U.S. would be India, which, uh, uh, as I said, is about to become the largest country by population and which has been profiting from a 7% uh, economic growth rate uh, and uh, I think has an impressive future. But one has to be careful to remember that India is a $2 trillion economy. The United States is a $20 trillion economy. There's a long way to go before India would pass the US. In addition, India has to cope with the fact that it's not fully utilizing its human resources. One third of Indian women are not literate. You can't afford to waste that proportion of your human resources and can rise to be the top power. So that really leaves us with one country, which would be the contender to replace the US in terms of relative decline, and that, of course, is China. But to recap what I was saying is on the theory that uh, the Americans can no longer preserve a liberal international order because they're in decline. My answer to that was no. And then the question is, but could they be overtaken by another country uh, in replacing them? Uh, And the major candidate that people refer to is China, Um, that I did not think that China would replace the U.S. and that in the various measures of power, economic power, military power, and soft power, when you look at those carefully, that the view that China has replaced the U.S. or is about to replace the U.S. in total size of its economy uh, rests on the use of purchasing power parity, which is a measure which is good for comparing welfare but not necessarily power. For example, you don't import jet engines or oil at purchasing power parity. You import it at exchange rates. And at exchange rates, the American economy, as I mentioned earlier, is a $20 trillion economy. China is a $12 trillion economy. So the people who say China's already passed the U.S. are, I think, are using an odd set of numbers. However, if you take the prospects of Chinese growth and 1.3 billion people, at some time, you might expect the Chinese economy to be larger than the American economy. It used to be fashionable when China was growing at 10% and the U.S. at 2% to say this will happen in 2020. Now, with China growing at 6%, and some people thinking that may actually go down, uh, that uh, people say, well, then China may be larger than the U.S., sometime in the 2030s. But even if it is, another measure of an economy is its sophistication, not just its total size. And that's often captured by per capita income. And there, China, even when it is equal in size to the United States, will not be equal in per capita income. So on the measure of economic power, It's not clear that China, it's certainly clear that China, to my mind, has not passed the U.S. by the proper measures, but it's not clear when it will, and perhaps sometime in the 2030s. Uh, Military power, where the U.S. military budget is four times that of China, China has been indeed improving its military position with double digit growth in its military budget, but it still is a long way to being an equal in military power to the United States. And in soft power, the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payment, uh, China still lags considerably behind. If you look at the uh, soft power 30 index, which is published here in London by Portland, uh, China ranks number 28 of the 30. Uh, Britain used to rank one, I think it's now two, America is ranked uh, one this year. I don't, it may go down to two or less next year, but still there's a large gap between the U.S. and China. Now, what's interesting here is, to my mind, not whether we're going to fall into what my colleague Graham Allison likes to call a Thucydides trap, where the rising power creates fear, which leads to war. Uh, I think there's some serious flaws in that argument, but I won't go into them unless people want to in question period. Uh, but I want to go back to what I said st- at the start of my talk about what I called the Kindleberger Trap, which is another dimension of power transition. And that was what happened to Britain and the U.S. in the 1930s that the United States had become the most powerful country, but didn't live up to the responsibilities of providing global public goods that Britain could no longer provide, and the result was the disaster of the 1930s. So the interesting question is, will China, as it grows in power, as it gets closer to the US, will it pick up this role of helping to provide global public goods? what Robert Zellick, former president of the World Bank, called becoming a responsible stakeholder. There's some hopeful signs on this, uh, and I don't mean just Xi Jinping's talk at Davos, which uh, many have pointed to as, uh, as a great uh, advance. You know, China is still a long way from being a liberal international economic leader. But China has benefited greatly from the rules-based system and from the liberal international economic system. And I think if you look at China's contribution to U.N. peacekeeping, if you look at China's uh, development of uh, international institutions, uh, including the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, and even including the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, these are ways of providing infrastructure which could be good for everyone as well as being good for China. So I think, our, I think there's some signs that China may be picking up some of the slack. Particularly important, I think, is China's role on climate where from being a, uh, quite a recalcitrant partner at Copenhagen in 2009 at the UN conference to being uh, one of the leading countries in 2015 in Paris. So I think there's some signs that China is moving, in a way, to avoid the Kindleberger trap, but not completely. If you look at the Chinese rejection of the Law of the Sea Tribunal uh, judgment on its position on the South China Sea uh, last year, uh, that would, I think, not fit the pattern. So it's an open question, but I do think that as we ask about will the liberal international order survive, Uh, The question of will China avoid the Kindleberger trap and cooperate in providing global public goods, is not out of the question. Some people argue that if it's not invented here from China's point of view, China won't participate. I think a better argument is the argument that China will participate and try to get more of the benefits for itself. Uh, But that's not a bad thing. In any case, if I look over the threats that... uh, that we face, I mentioned to, that the liberal international order face, I mentioned that in addition to the power transition issue if, if from uh, west to east, the horizontal transition, there's what I call the vertical power change, which I call power diffusion from states to non-state actors. And here, in an information revolution that we've been seeing since Moore's law from the 1960s, uh, with this extraordinary reduction in the cost of information making it available to all sorts of actors uh, at, at, uh, who couldn 't play in the game before, what we 're seeing is a world in which many more transnational forces and forces that are driven by non state actors are becoming important uh, If you look at the uh, the questions of Uh, power diffusion and you look at issues like uh, climate change, if you look at uh, financial stability, if you look at uh, cyber stability, if you look at uh, problems of transnational terrorism, you'll see that uh, no country can deal with these alone. There isn't a unilateral solution to these problems. Which means the type of power that you need to deal with these is not power over another country, but power with other countries. And changing our frame of reference to understand how to cope with power thought of as power with rather than just power over is something which we're trying to cope with, but not doing it very well. And this is the area where I think uh, being able to develop networks and to use soft power or attraction is particularly important. Uh, It's interesting, the United States uh, has more alliances and is in more networks than any other country. Uh, The question is, will that continue? And I think there is going to be the real challenge to the nature of the American order that we've seen since 1945, and that's the challenge of whether we can maintain this position of centrality in networks and soft power to deal with power diffusion, as well as our hard power for dealing with power transition. Now, this is where we come to what I said was the problem that I alluded to at the beginning, which I fear the rise of Trump more than I fear the rise of China. And the reason I say that is that uh, Trump represents forces of populism and nationalism which distinctly don't want to be involved in international networks and which devalue international alliances. And that goes back to this quotation from McMaster and, and Cohn that I started with earlier, that they uh, Trump sees the world as a world as a competitive arena rather than one which is a rules-based system. And in that sense, uh, not everyone in the Trump administration sees it that way, but it is a very powerful strand and reflects Trump's own thinking. Uh, for example, the budget director, Mick Mulvaney, in announcing Trump's budget for the year, called it a hard power budget. And when you ask what does that mean, it means that they cut the budget for the State Department than for the UN by about a third Uh, and their view is that these are not relevant to power. But if you follow the analysis that I've tried to produce this noon, uh, they're very relevant to power, but you have to think of power in a more subtle way than Donald Trump thinks of power. Now, some people in his administration do and and understand this. For example, Secretary of Defense Mattis, uh, a general, Uh, says, if you cut the budget for the State Department, you're going to have to buy me more ammunition. And he has said that soft power is one of the important dimensions of power for the United States. Uh, And you'll find people in the Senate who are generally hawks, like Lindsey Graham and John McCain, who have said something similar. But you don't find it at the top of the American government. And the question then is when you focus only on military power and power transitions, you realize that the military can't solve issues related to climate change. It can't solve issues related to financial stability. It can't solve issues related to the Internet and governance of the Internet. So the question for the future of the liberal international system is will we adjust our domestic attitudes enough to cope with this new dimension of power diffusion rather than focusing just on power transition from west to east? Um, And the answer to that, frankly, is we don't know. Uh, To answer Larry Summers' question that I started with, are we at a hinge in history, a turning point, Uh, We don't know. If Donald Trump turns out to be a one-term president, uh, it's quite plausible that we will look back and see this as uh, an interruption in a longer process. Uh, If he is re-elected or someone like him is elected, uh, then you might uh, have a very different world, which Summers' projection and Ed Luce's projection may turn out to be correct. One thing to realize as you try to think about this, though, is that it's important not to overinterpret the 2016 American election. The 2016 and the election of Donald Trump was not a populist wave of opinion. Remember, he did not win the majority of American voters. He is a constitutionally elected president. But by the vagaries and oddities of our 18th century constitution, he got a minority of the vote. He's legitimate but not popularly elected. Uh, Nate Silver, a, a, a somebody who studies public opinion polls, has said that when you look at Trump's support it's probably about twenty five percent the hardcore support the people that he was appealing to when he uh, stepped out of the Paris Accords. Uh, he was elected by about 46% of the vote, which meant he got other conservatives and traditional Republicans to get him enough states to win in the Electoral College. But that's quite different than the view that suddenly we've been swept by a overwhelming populism which uh, will carry on into the future. Uh, I think the key question is whether this situation that we're seeing now is one in which populism will trend but ebb or whether it will increase. On the good side, you can see that uh, some issues, such as um, the antipathy toward immigration, which was very powerful after the Great Recession of 2009, That's now changed back. American history always goes back and forth on immigration, and uh, the situation of the latest polls I've seen is a majority of Americans actually favor immigration, and whereas three or four years ago, that wasn't the the case. On the other hand, if we try to project the future, uh, those of us who have looked at politics for a while realize that. Uh, life and history are full of surprises, and projections are bound to be defeated. Uh, So as we look at the fact that Trump does not represent a populist surge, that the institutions of American government have to some extent checked and balanced him, as Madison would have liked when he wrote the Constitution, Uh, at the same time we have to ask what would happen if there were a major terrorist attack in the United States, other 9/11. I don't know what this recent terrorist attack is going to do with projections for your election, but if one says, "Could Trump be reelected in 2020?" My bet right now would be no. But if you say, "But what are the probabilities of some major terrorist event between now and 2020?" would you be willing to make that bet? I'd say, no, my probabilities are contingent, and I don't know how to answer that. So in that sense, to go back to the original question, um, is the American era over, to answer Summer's question from yesterday, um, if the election in 2020 uh, turns in the direction that I Probably expect, uh, then I think the answer is no. We will see this as an aberration in history rather than a than a trend. Um, and people say yes, but can the U.S. afford to continue to provide global public goods? And the answer to that is clearly yes. The U.S. spends about four percent of its gross domestic product on defense and foreign policy. In the Cold War, it spent about 10%. Uh, The problem is not guns versus butter. It's guns versus butter versus taxes. But if Americans would be willing to pay more taxes, it clearly is within the economic capacity. This is not like the Soviet Union in its final days. And then you say, but what are the attitudes? Will the Americans continue to support an international role Uh, There you look at the public opinion polls, such as the Pew polls or the poll recently done by the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. You'll see that a considerable majority of Americans, 60-some percent, uh, want to stay involved internationally. In other words, this is not a return to 1930s isolationism. But then you come back to these conditional bets. What if there's a 9-11 or some other similar event, could those attitudes change? Yes, they could. And those are the uncertainties. If we go on the path that I expect, then I think you'll see this period that we're in now as an aberration. If, on the other hand, events mean that there is a re-election of Trump or another populist, then I think the likely outcome is not a Chinese international order, but entropy, the inability to get work entropy, the inability to get work done, meaning our global capacity to produce public goods, such as responding to climate change, or developing a regime for the governance of cyber events and so forth. I think that that will be less likely, because of entropy, and we'll all be the worse off for it, uh, Americans and others. So I give you a, condi- a conditional answer to Larry Summers' question that I started with, which was um, uh, the issue of, are we at a turning point in history or not? And Summers says, uh, what is to be done he says, the U.S. president is not America. The world will be watching to see whether President Trump's words and deeds represent an irrevocable turn to America's in America's approach to the world or the, whether they resent, represent a temporary aberration. At this point, I bet on aberration, but I wouldn't bet the mortgage of my house on it. So thank you very much.